0: You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Giving, most affirming, most supporting thing that a person can experience. But when a family is broken, there is no deeper hurt or pain on the planet. So, family is so potent for good and yet so potent for bad or harm. This is the story of us, and this is the story of almost every family in the Bible. I want to show you what I mean. I'm going to ask you, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 9 together today. We're going to look at a family in the Bible. The, the head of that family is Noah. Many of you are familiar with that story. If you're not, you'll get more acquainted right now. But we want to look at this story just for a moment. We may think that Noah was uh, this amazing guy who was righteous all the time and he followed God. Um, he's the, kind of the Dr. Doolittle of the Old Testament. You know, We, we have him just kind of the, the giraffe whisperer you know, bringing in the animals two by two. And that's oftentimes what we think about. And our focus is usually on Noah and the flood, but the story doesn't end there. The story goes a little bit further. Really, the biggest test for Noah wasn't surviving the flood, but surviving each other, surviving family and relationships. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 9 with me, beginning at verse 1. It says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, Saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and be filled or, be, or fill the earth. If you were going to read this verse, you would think that this is God's version, and they all lived happily ever after. But you need to keep reading. You need to go down a little further in the story and understand three things about Noah. Here are the three things that you need to know it gives us a little context. Gives us a little understanding of who he was and what he did and how he maneuvered through life. First of all, Noah maintained faith in chaos. That was the one thing that got Noah on the Hall of Fame list in, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. Is that he had faith. He had faith in God during a very ex- extremely difficult, chaotic, violent time on the planet. The second thing you need to know is this. That Noah grew a family that survived the storm. Now, that's commendable. I mean, that's amazing that during the time that he lived, his family actually survived, Uh, that they were strong. But then the third thing is this, is Noah, like all of us, battled family dysfunction, that we all have dysfunction. We all have brokenness that we deal with. So here's my question. Can we take the story of Noah and find a way to break the cycle of brokenness? Can we take this story and find a way to deal with our dysfunction in both our biological families and in the church family? So what can we learn from Noah at the end of his life? So how do we deal with family realities? That's what we're talking about here today. And they are. You're dealing with some right now. I'm positive. And those can be some of the most stressful times in our life, and you can see it Body, soul, and spirit. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's hard to keep your eyes up. It's hard to keep your head up. It's hard to keep your soul up when you're dealing with some pretty difficult family realities. But Noah teaches us how to do that. And, and, and it goes in, the, the story goes into a place in Noah's life that we would think, well, God would have probably or should have probably skipped over this, you know, because this really isn't that, that pretty. This story really isn't that great. Uh, When you look at it from, let's say, uh, a cheery side of life, this is the reality. And I love so much the way God deals with these hardships in our life that he doesn't cover them up. That what he does is he brings them to the surface and he says, here, these are things you need to know about. These are issues that you need to look at in your own life. And Noah did all of this during a great time of chaos and violence. So what is the best strategy during a time of chaos and violence? Well, I don't think you have to go very far to, to look around at the day and time we live. Is What is our strategy? What do people do in response to a chaotic time, a very violent culture? Well, there are a few things that people do. Number one is we hide. Uh, a lot of times people will just run. They just want to hide. They want to go live on a mountaintop somewhere else and, and have no one bug them. Maybe you feel like that. Another response that I, I think people have is they just become more violent. So they respond to violence with violence. But then there's a, a, another way, and it, it's a better way. It's the way that Noah dealt with violence and chaos in his time. Noah got near to God, and that's number one. I want you to write that down. If you have your outline, write that in there. Noah got near to God. It says in Genesis 6:5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the planet, on the earth, And that every inclination of the thoughts of a human heart was only evil all the time. And then in in that environment, you go to verse 9, and you hear how Noah dealt with it. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now, when you read this, I know some people are probably thinking, well, God only walks with holy people, And, and Noah was one of those holy people. You may think that God doesn't want to walk with you because you're flawed, or you're, you're broken. Listen, Jesus Christ came to this planet. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that atoned and redeemed us. He rose again to give us power over the life that we live. He got rid of all the obstacles that stand in the way from you and me walking with God and being in God's presence. And we have to know that. Problems solved through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took care of that. And so we have an open door, really an invitation through Jesus Christ To have a relationship with our Father in heaven that we couldn't have before, but we have now in Jesus. Now, God wants to walk with you. That's what I want you to hear this morning. God wants to spend time with you. He wants you to be in His presence, and He wants Him, Himself, to be in your presence. So God wants that relationship. He wants that interaction. So here's what it says about God's promise to mankind. Because God came and he brought a promise in Genesis chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. He said, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. See, God is a a promise-keeping God. When God brings promises, He keeps those promises. God is a God who is faithful in promises to you. And so here are three types of promises that you need to know about that are in the Bible. There are three kinds of promises that we need to kind of get our head around and understand when God speaks to people, when He speaks to you, when He speaks to me, He comes at it from different ways as far as promises are concerned. So there is, first of all, a universal covenant or universal promise This is the promise here in chapter 9. God will do this no matter what. That God gives us a universal promise in Genesis 9 14 and 15. He says, "I'll, I'll I'll never flood the earth again, I'll never destroy people through a flood again. That is called a universal covenant. Then there's another one, and when you look at the Bible, you can see a lot of different ways where universal covenants actually operate. Him sending Jesus that that tells us all those who call on the name of the Lord would be saved. That's a promise, that anyone who does that, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, I'm not going to judge the earth by flood. And then there's another one, there's the conditional covenant. God will do if we follow Him. A conditional promise or covenant has an if to it. And it usually has to do with us leaning into God. It has to do with us being obedient and following God. It has a condition to it. And it says, I will do. God says, I will do this if you do this. I will do this if you do that. And so we have what we call conditional covenants. In James, uh, I believe it's chapter 5, where it says, uh, I'll give you anyone who asks, anyone who asks for wisdom, what does it say? I'll give it to you. If you ask for wisdom, I'll give it to you. What does it mean? It means I need to humble myself and ask. So God says there's an if to it. What do you have to do? You have to humble yourself and you have to ask. And then there's a personal covenant. Some of you have experienced this before, that God will do for an individual what he says he's going to do. That maybe in your journey with Jesus, your journey of faith, that you profoundly heard God speak to you, and when he spoke to you, you knew that that was a personal promise to you. Maybe it had to do with your life, your future. Maybe it had to do with your family or your friends. But listen, God is not idle. He is not empty. When he gives promises, he holds to those promises. I remember as a young man hearing a few of those promises to me personally and watching God walk that out in the journey of life for me. The things that I've been able to experience because God made a personal covenant with me. He did it with Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to look in the sky. Abraham, I want you to look at at the sand that that is in the seashore, that's in the ocean. So will your offspring be. Your offspring will be as many as what you see with your eyes. it's It's amazing. It's incredible. And God comes through. He promised Abraham something. He promised him a mighty nation. And that's exactly what happened. So here's the key idea, and I want you to think about this just for a moment. You cannot be a faithful person without first learning God's faithfulness. You know, we all have to have a model, don't we? We all have to have someone that we can follow. And so for me to be faithful, I need to learn about God's faithfulness. How do I learn that? I learn that through life, (laughs) through circumstances, and oftentimes through the hard way. I mean, there, there are times that we, we get in life where we're in a jam, we're not sure what to do, we're at the end of our rope, we don't know where to turn or what, where to go. And God comes along and he, he just opens these miraculous, marvelous doors for us that bring life and that bring freedom to us. And what we recognize is he is faithful. And because he has shown me faithfulness, I can live out a faithful life. And hopefully I can teach others faithfulness as well. So leaning into God's promises builds our faithfulness. When you experience God's faithfulness and walk near him, it gives you strength to be faithful. Can you say amen to that? I think that's so true. When our faith is is put in our own resources, when our faith is put in our own relationships, um, and maybe there are people we really count on in life, and we've experienced this, oftentimes those people are people who disappoint us. But when we go about life and put our our, our faith and our ability and relationships and our resources, ultimately we become disappointed because certain people didn't live up to certain expectations. Let me ask you this question. Whose problem is that? it's my problem because the promise I've been given is that God is the only one that's truly and completely and perfectly faithful. That, that there, are going to be bro- there is going to be brokenness. There is going to be hardship in relationship. When we put our faith and our trust in God first, we are strengthened and transformed by His Holy Spirit. So ultimately what I'm saying here, it's the Holy Spirit making alive God's faithfulness in your life. That when you recount God's intervention, when you recount God's uh, relationship with you, one of the things, and really the first thing you could come out of that with, an experience or a circumstance, you can say, God is faithful. There's no condition to that. He is absolutely faithful. So here's the second thing I think you can pick up from the story that we learn about here with Noah's life. It's really it's profound. It's the second point. So you might want to write this down. Get ready to write this down. Don't get drunk, all right? I mean, really, don't just just don't get drunk. This passage is a a little bit PG thirteen here um, because what you have involved uh, in this story is you have drunkenness, you have nakedness, and you have an old man. And let's all agree that those three things put together are very awkward, very awkward. (laughs) And so uh, we, we're giving a little disclaimer here for PG-13, a little bit here. Listen, don't write me complaints uh, through the email. If you want to write anybody, here's, here's where you can write, Pastor com. So if you want to send somebody a complaint about this message, go ahead and send Pastor James. He is so much patient and generous than I am. So you go ahead and write him. But this is the story we have here. You can see it in Genesis nine eighteen through 21. It says, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. So you can see the trajectory here. Canaan is really not a good story altogether. In fact, they become enemies of the nation of Israel. So you kind of see where rebellion might lead. Now, there are three boys here. Uh, I had two brothers, so there were three boys in my family and a little sister. But it was always two against one. Always, I mean, you know, the one would stand back and listen to the others and decide which side they were going to be on. And it seems like this is happening in this story just a little bit. I think something's happening here in this passage of Scripture that we've got to get a hold of. And it goes on, it says, "...these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and when he drank some of its wine... He became drunk, and he lay uncovered inside of his tent. Now first of all, Noah is not a boat builder. You have to know this. He's not a boat builder. He is a farmer that God interrupted to build a boat. So he's just going back to life as he knows it. And one of the things that you can come up with here is what Noah really wanted to do was he wanted to plant stuff, and he wanted to harvest what he planted. And that's what he's doing here. He's growing a vineyard. He may have even started that on the boat, on the, on the ark. Because this process takes a long time. This process could take two to five years before he actually got to taste the wine. But can you imagine that what he's been through, he gets to this place... He's so satisfied in his product because that's what farmers do. They love to grow things. They love to harvest things. The time comes one day the wine is ready. Yahoo! I mean, he's pretty excited. And the Bible says he became drunk. Noah became so drunk that he uh, he laid uncovered inside of his tent. Uh, he was too drunk to put on his pajamas. He didn't cover up. He was so out of it. This is the story we read here. And here's the question Why did Noah stumble? It says here that Noah is a righteous man, that Noah is near God. So, what in the world happened? I'd like to know things like that, especially when the, when the Bible qualifies his life by saying, Hey, he's righteous. Um, he, he walks near God. And in this story, it tells us that he stumbled. Well, The Bible doesn't tell us all the reasons that he stumbled, but we probably can come up with a few reasons, not excuses, but there are probably a few reasons that he did stumble. They're the same reasons we might stumble today. One is fatigue, hard work and stress. What you deal with today, probably more than any other generation or any other time on the planet, we are dealing with a lot of stress, a lot of different stress. And it just seems like it takes more energy to do the things that we're supposed to do. I mean, I'm even thinking of some of your drive time. You know, if you, if, you work in, uh, if you work in Hillsboro and you have to leave here to go there, you're talking one particular day, you're talking three, maybe four hours in a car. Driving is stressful for me. That's why I only live two blocks away. People say, hey, how long does it take for you to get to work? One minute, 90 seconds at the most, unless there's a train, and then things get you know, backed up a bit. But, but one of the things I know is there's a possibility I could lose my salvation driving, you know? And it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get mad. I don't want to get angry. But it happens. So here I'm wondering, did, did Noah become so tired, so burnt out, so fatigued that this caused him, was maybe one of the reasons that he stumbled? Well, there's another one, too, that I think about. It's damaged emotions. I'm wondering a little bit, and, and think with me here just for a moment, uh, because we can sterilize it, we can do all kinds of things here to make it look prettier than it really is or was. I'm wondering if he had a little PSD. I wonder if he had a post traumatic syndrome. How would you feel watching all those people die? I mean, you can't, well, God was with me and it was, you know, and I, was, I didn't see any of that. You did see, He did see all of that. He heard the screams, He heard the agony, He heard the pain that people were in because they were dying. So I'm wondering to myself, when I really dig into this story, was there some damage emotion here that that he was trying to deal with in his own life? Obviously not in the right way, but he was trying to deal with it. And then there's another one here, and and that's conflict. I don't know how you spend as much time in a tight place that he was in without having conflict in family. You know, I mean, just take a two-hour car ride with some of your family and kids and you're about ready to go crazy. I mean, really, I mean, you're about ready to lose it. Here they're in this boat and they're locked up and they're not only locked up with each other, they're locked up with a whole lot of animals here. I don't know what kind of stress this brought on, but I'm sure there was stress here and there was some family conflict. So, so to make this a, a, a real question for all of us, I mean, how do I apply what I've just heard to my own life And let me ask this question, why do you get drunk? Why do we do that? It's easy to put it back into Noah's day. It's another thing to say, wow, is it fatigue? Is it damage emotions? Is it conflict? Listen, I'm really not a killjoy, so if you've come here for the first time in church, you say, yeah, there he is. It's prohibition. Guy's against all this, and he's against all that. No, that's not what I'm doing here. The Bible doesn't teach against alcohol. It teaches against drunkenness doesn't doesn't teach that we cannot have a drink it says don't get drunk that's what the bible says over and over again and i know this i know jesus drank wine so please don't be holier than jesus just a little word for you i know that's what that's so what we have op, we have places where where that happened in the new testament but it was different back then during noah's day than it is today because it took, back then, it took hard work to drink wine. What did we say earlier? It could have been two to five years that he really worked at this. I mean, just imagine, versus today, walking into a store and they give you gallons in cardboard i mean it's kind of amazing and, and you go to costco and costco's already cheap and they say now we're having a discount on all this boxed wine and we're just going oh man i got my coupons boy i got a lot of boxed wine right now that's how easy it is every time you turn on the tv somebody's advertising their alcoholic goods you go to costco and it's like a whole showroom of, of what you can buy in the form of alcohol wasn't that way then. I mean, now we just go in and we buy boxes of wine. It's volumes. So this highly addictive substance is so much more accessible today than it was ever before. Ever before. Listen, I I can't drink. And you know why I can't drink? (laughs) I would drink in volumes. I'd be walking out of the store going, hey, I hit the jackpot. I would. I would. That's way. That's the way I. That's the way I'm wired. That's what I would do. Now I'm married to someone who is a lot more disciplined than I am, and in the circles I run in, they call someone like my wife a normie. And I've watched her. If she ever has, if she ever has a glass of wine, which isn't that often, she can actually do that. This. this is a blow, a mind blower to me. She can actually drink half a glass and walk away. And I'm thinking, why don't you just suck that thing down? So drinking isn't for everybody. But it's not excluded in the Bible. It says just you don't get drunk. Listen, friends, I say all this to say we must be more vigilant today just because the access we have to alcoholic products. You just have to be much more vigilant today. See, drinking can become destructive when, number one, it makes others stumble. Parents, I'm going to ask you this question. How do your kids see you after hours? How do they see you at home at night? Do they see discipline? Do they see moderation? Do they see someone who has really a focus on Jesus Christ in their home? Or do they see someone who is lacking discipline? Somebody who might be drinking too much. One beer turns into six. I want to just say this right now. This is a big deal. And we have to deal with this. So, parents, let me just send out this godly, loving warning: Be careful. Be careful when you have your kids around you. I'll never forget when I was growing up, and you know, back then it um, wasn't—they didn't have all the labels—the labels of uh, "You will die if you smoke this cigarette," kind of thing, you know. Uh, so it's hard to believe today, but my mom and dad smoked in the early 60s. I mean, I, I can't imagine that today. It's just hard to picture that, you know. And my dad was out in the backyard, and he was working in a pack of his uh, cigarettes laying on a picnic bench. And he just happened to look over at a time my little brother was looking at the pack of cigarettes. And my little brother pulled out one of the cigarettes, and he just started, you know, acting like his dad. That day, my dad quit smoking because he was so concerned about what he might model for his children and they would model for their children and their children's children. You see, when we talk about something like this, you have to have a long-range perspective. It isn't just about you and your pleasure and your desire. It's about those people that we influence. So if it makes others stumble, be warned. Here's another thing. It's a problem if it's in my family tree. So, so when is drinking a problem? Well, if it's in your family tree. You've you got to be aware of that. You've got to look back and say, well, this was this a problem with my mom, my dad, my, my aunts, my uncles? You know, it wasn't until I really had to face the reality that I had to deal with that I went into my family tree, because I knew my mom and dad didn't drink, at least not in front of me, and I never really saw any abuse there. So I asked them, I did a little homework, I said, hey, tell me about my, my grandparents on each side. And And they became believers later on. My both my grandparents, my grand both my grandpas came to Jesus like in their 40s or 50s. So they, they were a little older when they came to the Lord. What was going on? I asked before then, and they said, Oh, they were alcoholics. Oh, they drank a ton. I went, Whoa, all right. It's in my family tree. I need to watch out for this. I need to pay attention to this. And here's something else: drinking becomes destructive when. It makes others stumble. It's a problem in my family tree. And the third thing, it's a way to self-medicate. You have to be aware of that. Drink more because of stress. So the more stress goes up, the volume of alcohol might go up in my life. So if you're using any kind of mind-altering substance, alcohol included, to medicate yourself, this is an indication you might be on the path of destruction. You have to pay attention to that. You might be going somewhere that will be very difficult to back out of when you you look at this. The best thing that you can do to self-medicate, can I give you a solution? The best thing that you can do to self-medicate is to worship Jesus and read his word. I mean, if you want to deal with that in your life, and I, I, I love this because when I start to worship, there's something inside of me... There's mechanisms going off in my brain that I'm going, wow, this is what I really want. This is the kind of peace I want. This is the kind of tranquility that I want. It comes through worshiping Jesus. It comes through his word. So look for times in the course of the day where you can sit down and practice that in your life. Listen to worship. Read the word. Absorb what God has for you. This is the way you can medicate holy medication in your life. We agree? Please remember this. If Noah, who was righteous, can fall, anyone can fall. So you might be sitting there going, it's not it's not not my problem. I don't I really don't suffer with that. I don't I don't really deal with alcohol this way." And I'm glad for that. But I would say this, everyone is vulnerable to the sin of excess. Everyone in this room. Your excess may be judgment. (laughs) Judging those who do drink. That's an excess. You know that, don't you? Your excess may be social media. How often, how many times are you consumed with social media? I mean, I think it has its place. I think it's a good thing. It's a great tool. But are you operating in that realm of social media in excess? Instagram, Facebook, just the whole thing. TV, television. I mean, the other day, I was so convicted. man. I was just watching a part of a baseball game, and I knew, wow, I shouldn't be doing this. I I need to get up and and move around and do something productive, and that was just the Holy Spirit speaking to me at that time. He was interrupting the seventh inning of a Dodger game, and I thought, wow, he's really, man, God doesn't really care about this. He, you know, he wants me to get close to him. So, so I did, just wanted to turn that thing off and sit in his presence. When God instructs you to do that, please listen. So is your excess social media? Is it spending? You know, if you don't spend enough, do you get angry and edgy and bite your fingernails and... Feel that kind of unsettledness? That's called addiction. Is it working? You know, that's the one we, we put a little candy coat on it. We say, yeah, I'm a workaholic. That's too bad. And that's sick. We don't say that enough. Now, I know we've got to work hard. I know there's times in the job I have, it's demanding. Sometimes I'll have 40, 50, 60, 70 hours racked up. But I'm always looking and saying, God, where are those spaces that you want me to sit with you so that this does not become an addiction in my life as it has been in the past? How do you want me to do this, God? Listen, our only excess is God's amazing grace. That is our excess. That's what he pours out on us. So here's the last thing, my last point. Are we all good? Take a deep breath. Wow, we got through that one. That's what I was thinking this morning. The reality is family life is hard. And like Noah, being a father is hard. And I'm just going to talk to dads for a moment because I I don't know if we do this enough. And, And I'm just telling you I love you guys. And I so appreciate your role as fathers to your family and fathers in this community and fathers to those who are new believers in Jesus and mentoring so many. We have great fathers in this church. This is amazing. Dad, life is harder than you think. For instance, you come to Mother's Day on Sunday, (laughs) and I love this, (laughs) And we talk about the four reasons why my mom is the greatest person on the planet. And man, I mean, it's great. And I love it. And they are. You come to Father's Day, and the sermon's like 10 reasons why you aren't a promise keeper yet. So get your act together. That's tough. And there are foibles, there are failures, there are things that happen. Even when we're trying, dads, our hardest, we still roll over on our kids. I mean, something happens. It's it's hard, it breaks your heart. I don't know what you guys think about hunting. It's deer season right now, and I used to hunt a long time ago, but I don't hunt that much anymore, hardly at all. And there's a reason why I don't do that anymore. Because the last time I got a deer, I brought it to my boys and they went up and they just started sticking their finger in the bullet hole and opening its eyes, you know, pulling out its tongue and they were looking at it going, yeah, whoa, dad, whoa, whoa, you're really a mountain man. And so we went to dinner that night. We just started talking about the little hunting expedition and the boys started telling their stories about sticking their fingers in the bullet hole. And I have a little girl, my youngest, she's sitting there, she's like five, and she's listening to all this, and she's looking at me, and all of a sudden I see this disappointment just come over her face, and she's looking at me, and she's disappointed, and that's the worst thing a father could ever feel, is when his daughter is disappointed in something he's done, and she's just staring me down, and that disappointment turned into anger, and she just got mad, and she looked at me, and she dropped her head on the table, and she goes, ha, ah, ah, ha, ah. ha, she says, I love deer, and then she stuck her head back up, and she looked at me, and she goes, and I love bunnies, too, so if you're thinking about shooting bunnies, buddy, you better not. Cured me, haven't done it again. I wasn't trying to, but I somehow did it, I just, you know, what should have been a, a moment of celebration, it would have been like 100 years ago. Wasn't. And I thought, wow, how often does this happen? So here's where I'm going with this. Here's what I want to say in families. If we learn anything from Noah, we must learn to give honor. If you learn anything, you must learn to give honor. You see, we think somehow... Honor should be earned. Honor's not earned. None of us, and you know why? Because no one in this room is honorable. Totally and completely. There's failure. I mean, I could be honorable nine out of ten times, and oftentimes that tenth time is what ends up defining me. Trust is earned. The Bible says that honor is given. We give honor as a gift. And when we don't, there are huge consequences to that. Huge. Here's what it says in verses 22 through 23. It says, Haman, the father of Cana, again, he mentions that, saw his father naked, told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, they laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. It's interesting. Noah has three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We don't know the back story here, but it seems that Ham might have had a problem with his father. Maybe they were on the boat too long together and Ham just got tired of hearing his dad say, do this, do this, do this. What's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? Why can't you get this done? Why can't you do this? That might have been what was going on there. But the Bible says that Ham did not honor his father. See, I'm wondering if he saw his dad kind of stumble by on the way to the tent and he was thinking to himself, I got him now that hypocrite righteous man near to god all that stuff what does he do he runs into see so he could do something so he could tell he was uncovering someone he was uncovering his father even though his father was physically uncovered he was looking to bring shame he wasn't looking to bring honor And that's why I want to say to you, be so careful how you talk about people. Please. Yeah, they might be messing up royal. I don't know. It certainly wasn't a good idea for Noah to do what he did. really wasn't. But we must be incredibly careful as believers in Jesus Christ not to buy into what the culture may be doing right now and shaming and uncovering people that what we do is we bring a covering. We bring honor. Even in places where it might not be deserved. See, the two other boys took that garment. They walked in backwards. They covered their father's nakedness. Now, I, I, again, I think there were probably a couple things here that they didn't want to turn around and look. One was, <laughs> wow, is this what I'm going to look like in 25 years? Aye, aye, aye. You know, I mean, nobody... You know, no young man wants to see his father like that. So they're probably thinking, I don't want to see this. I can't unsee this. But there's something else happening. These two brothers are giving their father honor when he doesn't deserve it. Ham went into his father's tent to exploit his father's sin of drunkenness. Being naked wasn't a sin. Drinking his own product was not the sin the sin was his drunkenness, and he still gave him honor. Why do we know this to be true? Why do we know that we need to do this and give honor? Well, Deuteronomy five sixteen says, As a commandment, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you will live long and it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. Now, can I say what it doesn't say here? It doesn't say, honor your fathers and mothers if they deserve it. It doesn't say that here. That's actually left out. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you to do. Pretty emphatic, wouldn't you say? Now, I know there's a lot of pain that can come with this. I know there is. Because there are no perfect parents. You thought you were before you had kids. You have kids, now you're not. That's how it works. That's the magic potion, little kids. It doesn't say honor your father and mother when they deserve it. No, it says honor your father and mother. Why? So that you may live a long life. Have you ever wondered why it says that and what's the catch, what's the deal there? That you may live a long life. Why does it say that? Here's why. Because your kids are watching how you are dealing with, with your parents, your aging parents. My kids are watching me process and live life with my parents who are in their 80s now, who can't find their car keys and sometimes can't find their car. Dad, how are you dealing with that? Dad, I'm watching you because this is how I'm going to treat you. Do do you see the effect here? Do you see the legacy that it creates here? The reason that this is in the commandments is saying if you want to live a long life, then you better honor your father and mother because your kids are watching you and they're going to treat you the same way that you treat your aging parents. That's a big one. Listen, dishonor, and here's the idea, and I'm going to finish with this. Dishonor breaks a family. Honor builds. Dishonor breaks a family up. Honor builds. For that reason, I want to honor. And I'm so thankful that I have parents that honor their parents. And hopefully I'm honoring my parents. And that my children will honor their parents as well. Can I say that one of the fundamental rules of of values that we live by here? And I'm going to just tell you this. And I say it all the time around this campus. Cherish others and their gifts. Cover others in their weakness, not cover up, cover, put a banner of love, a covering of love, I think that's what that garment was that those two brothers brought in, Jehovah Nissi, he's my banner, he covers me with love, when we live this way, we honor Jesus Christ, and we honor our relationships, these are family realities that we deal with, would you bow your head with me? I'm going to invite our care teams to make their way to their places. We have care teams that would love to, ministry teams that would love to pray with you and for you. So they're going to make their way around here. So when, you, when we're done praying, you're going to see them. And I want you to take time and, and go, go have prayer today. Have someone pray with you. And I want to say this. If you're in a place where um, you're seeking the salvation of Jesus Christ in your own life... Would you do this? Take a few steps today. Take a few steps to one of these care team members. Tell them you want Jesus and you want to have a relationship with him. And and they'll pray with you. They really will pray with you. And I want to see that happen today so that we find the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and in this place. Father, we want to thank you today for your amazing grace. And that we do, all of us, have realities we deal with in life And some are just harder to talk about than others. And I'm just so thankful that you brought this out. This is in black and white. It's in Genesis chapter 9. You weren't hiding these dysfunctions. You weren't hiding these realities. But you were giving them to us as a gift so we could learn from them. God, you are gracious to us. Very gracious to us. So thank you for your grace. Cover us today. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say together... Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? And on the way out, again, you can go and receive prayer. We have pancakes and waffles in our patio. Again, if you're a guest or new with us, enjoy the fellowship and company. Go eat go eat pancakes, all right? God bless you. Turning, jump in the river of grace. We'll see. I am not. And I am. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through CanbyFoursquare.com.